Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to the Safari Habura. We're at week 20 now. It's incredible to think uh, we've had 20 classes already, and please God, many, many more. Uh, for those who are new to the Habura, who are joining us this week, courtesy of uh, our wonderful guest, uh, we are a virtual and soon-to-be physical Beth Midrash with a global base of Talmudim uh, who are really learning and living the classical Safavi uh, approach to Torah. Uh, we do some housekeeping at the beginning just to let all the Talmudim know what's going on. For those who want to join the WhatsApp group to basically keep up to date with uh, our weekly classes, uh, you can either leave your number in the chat or if you're a bit more private than that, feel free to email thebethmidrash at gmail.com. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, Rabbi Dweckpack continuing his uh, series on Safari for Shabbat. And I think it's also important to note that we are all in a period of uh, mourning over the loss of uh, the giant of our generation, uh, Rabbi Yonatan Sachs, Allah Shalom. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the group, all of our upcoming shurim will be dedicated to the Um uh, it's, it's a very, very difficult time for Israel and the world. Uh, as a whole, with a very, very big gaping hole uh, in, in, in our world. Uh, moving on to the Shior and the Tami Hacham that we have the honor of hosting tonight, I, I really wanted to begin by quoting uh, a part of an intro of the intro to one of Hacham Faul's books on uh, Hacham Sraim Hazan. And I think it's very, very important that everyone really absorbs the words that Hacham Faur uses here, uh, and you'll understand why I'm saying uh, reading it. Hacham Faur writes, something terrible is taking place in regard to everything which is connected to the cultural, religious, and educational tradition of the, of the Sephardi Jews in our times. Things that in the recent past were known to every rabbinic student are unknown today, even to those who are referred to as giants of the generation. We who were raised on the ancient educational tradition, which was kept alive for generation after generation in the houses of study of the Sephardim, see this new state of affairs with a heavy heart and despondent eyes. The bridges with the past have been destroyed. The markers along the road have been uprooted. The pathways have been erased and covered with dirt. What will the young one who wishes to reveal his past do? Where will he turn? Who will show him the way? And I think it's no exaggeration to say uh, that our guest tonight, Rabbi Matan Halevi, is and will be instrumental in not only showing us the way, as Hasan Paul uh, writes, of this classical Sephardi approach to Torah, but beyond teaching, to actually promote it as a way that we can come to love it and most importantly to live it. Rabbi Yonatan Halevi is a spiritual leader of Kailat Shah HaShamayim in California, and he sits on the Shibiti Bet Din. He received his semicha from the great Harav Yaakov Peretz in Yerushalayim. He is the author of Yehi Shalom. Google it. It's an extremely helpful guide to the laws of Kashrut on Pesach. And the Raf has also established himself, as I'm sure you all know, uh, online with a vast array of unique Torah content, championing the very Masorah You've hear, heard me banging on about the whole time and very much representing the ethos of this new initiative. So, Rav Halevi, uh, thank you very much for being here with us and the stage is yours. Thank you so much, Tina, for having me. It's so 
good to be back with you all. Many of you I know from my trip to London not so long ago. Thanks to Sina for making that shoe happen as well. And many of you from our different interactions over the internet. Some of you I know by name from seeing you around the different forums. I see a number of Talmidei Chachamim here. I ask your forgiveness that I'm speaking Divrei Torah in front of you, but uh, please give me your permission to share some words of Torah. Sina, I have to say that uh, I, I regret my earlier position that you are uh, you could be a politician. Uh, I think better than that, I would like to hire you. After 120 years, you should be the one to be masfid me. But today, Baruch Hashem, I'm still alive and well, and if only half the things Sina said about me were true, uh, I would be a very, very uh, grateful person. Baruch Hashem. The Av Bet Midrash here is Rabbi Dweck, who's not with us today, but it's with his permission that I speak, and I'm, I'm very grateful to him, to Sina, as well as to Avi Garson for creating this space, which is for now virtual, but Bezat Hashem, very soon I hear you have plans to make it more than that, and I wish you that HaKadosh Baruch should only give you success in all that you do, and in all of your ways, Bezat Hashem. For those who are part of our Shiviti UK Bet Midrash, just, uh, you already have heard this before, but for those who are not, there are slight cultural differences between the United Kingdom and the United States of America. The Sina has filled me in on some words that I didn't know mean awesome in a much more sophisticated fashion. That in case anybody wants to ask something or say something, I'm not monitoring the chat box, but if you want to unmute yourself, you're more than welcome to talk. Uh, when I was dating my wife, it was 2013, I was sitting with her in a hotel lobby in Yerushalayim. Who thinks up of these romantic places? I don't know. But I was sitting across from her at a King David Hotel or something to that effect, and I told her, why do you keep interrupting me? And she says, Yonatan, if I don't interrupt you, I will never have a chance to speak. And uh, that's the same thing tonight. So if you don't interrupt me, then I will be going on and on, so please make sure that you're comfortable being a little American and rude and just interrupt me, even if I'm in the middle of a sentence. I would love to hear from you and to hear uh, your thoughts or any questions that come up as we learn together. I was invited a while back to an event, a Sephardic cultural event. I remember it was a film festival of sorts, something like that. And as I always do when invited to such things, I do a little bit of investigation and then normally I decline offer. And the reason is very simple. Because they don't have Ashkenazi film festivals or Ashkenazi belly dancing camels or uh, all kinds of other uh, events that are meant to portray one side of Jewish tradition as uniquely exotic. Uh, we have borekas and we have kube and we have uh, all kinds of special clothing that we wear. But when Sephardic tradition is reduced to something purely cultural and ignores entirely the the theological, philosophical, and moral contributions that Chachamei Svarad and the community of Svarad, not just the Chachamim Svarad, contributed and continue to contribute to Am Yisrael, then I have no part in joining such programs and such events. And normally when I get invited by something like the Sephardi Chabura, I would normally tell you I'm not coming because it starts with the word the Sephardi, but here is the key, and that is that this group of people, this Chabura of people, have created exactly the opposite of that. And it's a place, and I've seen the classes that you've offered in the past. Regretfully, I have not been able to attend the last 20, but Bezat Hashem, please God, going forward. The place that you have all created to foster ideas, deep ideas, complex thoughts, age-old philosophies that Chachmei Sfarad had brought to the table, 
and not only made them relevant to the Sephardic community, but Sina wrote something today in one of the WhatsApp chats that we share, that Sephardi has to be redefined. Well, you didn't exactly say it, but I'm going to say it for you. Sephardi has to be redefined as not something that is limited to any particular ethnicity or background. In our kilah, we always say that Sephardic is not about where you come from, but rather where you want to see yourself go. And there's a philosophy here that deserves to be reckoned with, it deserves to be engaged with for all people, not just Sephardim. All people have the right to try to dabble in, to feel out the ideas that Chachamei Sephardim bring to the table. And just like the world has accepted that there can be, maybe we haven't all accepted, but there can be people of Moroccan heritage who become Lubavitch Chassidim, or people of Yemenite heritage who become Breslavers, or people of Iraqi heritage who identify with Lithuania more than Baghdad, we have to be willing to accept that the opposite can be true also. The Torah is fluid, the Torah doesn't have borders. And for a person to identify as a Sephardi doesn't mean this is where my family comes from, but rather this is a worldview, a philosophy which I subscribe to. And that's why anyone who's ever read about Sephardim realized that there's nothing in common between the different Sephardic communities, some in Spain, some in Portugal, some in North Africa, some in the Middle East, countries that didn't necessarily engage with each other directly and don't share cultures or food or even languages, but all somehow identify as Sephardim. As Sina wrote in his book, ideas that Sephardim are those who subscribe to a certain worldview, a certain philosophy that was championed in the academies of Sephardim. And I think that there's no greater place to start this discussion than where it matters. Sephardim and Halakha, the fact that across continents, Sephardic communities, Sephardic Bataydin, Sephardic Chachamim ruled Halakha not in a way of conformity in which there was no creativity, but in a unified fashion. There was one code of Jewish law, and that was that of Marana Shulchan Aruch. And that's what I wish to discuss with you today, at least the beginning of it. The formal acceptance of Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo, and when I say Maran, I'm always referring to Rabbi Yosef Karo, as the primary Sephardic halachic authority throughout the world. Now I know that as I say that, and for those who have background in this area of study, yes, Sephardim follow Maran except for when they don't. And we all know that, just like everybody follows somebody except for when they don't. We have a deep love in our heart for the Rambam's Mishneh Torah, and some of us are perplexed why we would ever replace a Mishneh Torah with a Shulchan Aruch. We know that the Ashkenazim most definitely did not accept a Shulchan Aruch, so as great as we think the book is, there must be a reason why they did not. And I promise you to answer and to get into all of those questions and conversations, but not in today's issue. Sina has already agreed to invite me back. Uh, for today, I wish to focus just on the topic of Kabbalat Hora'ot Maran Shulchan Aruch. We accepted the laws of Maran Shulchan Aruch. What happens after that, all the ifs and buts, we're going to have a chance to discuss. Today, don't get hung up on it. To first have a question, you have to appreciate the platform. And the platform that we're going to begin is with this one. Sina mentioned Rabbi Sachs, who passed away this weekend. We've lost a number of tremendous Tavanech Chamim in the last year. And I'm not one to tell you what the past means for the future. That's not my department. There seem to be some rabbis who always know the future. and I, I'm not one of them. I heard recently from a... I don't remember who it was. It could have been Rabinovich in Israel. It could have been him. He also passed away this year. In Rosh Hashivah Ma'ale Dumim. 
they asked him a question, and he said something to the effect of, you know, all the rabbis in Israel seem to have Ruach HaKodesh. Everybody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Everybody knows that this is the last year before the Mashiach. Everybody knows that this terrible disaster is with the reason for this and the reason for that, why the Holocaust, everyone knows everything. Except for me, I'm the only guy who didn't get the memo about Ruach HaKodesh. Same thing here, I don't know to tell you about the past, why things are happening the way they're happening. But whenever there are Chachamim who leave us, we must deal with the fact that we've lost something. There's a void that needs to be filled. And I think for many of us, the void of Chacham Fawur's passing was a tremendous, leaves a tremendous gaping hole in everything connected to being a Savadi. And so it's fitting to start with his words in the introduction to his out-of-print book, soon to be Bezat Hashem, someone should take it upon themselves, the mitzvah, to reprint this book, which is written in the Hebrew. But it has an English introduction, and I quote you, from that introduction to the book of Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. The man and his works on page one in our source sheet. If you don't have the source sheet, it should be in a link in the chat box. Or you can go to shiviti.org, S-H-I-V-I-T-I.org, forward slash Habura, H-A-B-U-R-A, and you'll find the source sheet at that uh, link as well. I can't read to you this whole piece, but the highlights of it I've bolded for you. Chacham Fa'ur starts off this book with the following sentence. Autonomy, rather than freedom, is the basic concept underlying the Sephardic tradition. This statement, I don't believe the Jewish community has ever spent enough time thinking about it. Where our Ashkenazi counterparts, Hashem should bless them with a long life, rejoiced very often in having equal rights as equal citizens in the countries that they were in, even in this country that we're in right now, all of the countries that we're in right now. For Sephardim, being free by being equal was not freedom at all. Rather, I'll read it to you again, autonomy rather than freedom is the basic concept underlying the Sephardic tradition. Autonomy means self-government according to one's own laws and values. A society is autonomous, when the ordering of human conduct and the adjustment of human relations are relative to its own criteria and interests. As much as modern Jews may hate this term of a Jewish ghetto, and I don't mean ghetto in a positive way, but for Sephardim, maintaining our autonomy, our legal autonomy, our national autonomy, regardless of which exile we found ourselves in, was the goal for us and was the, the delineator between Galut, exile, and Geula, a form of redemption. If you skip down to the bottom, and Chacham Fawur discusses here uh, at length the concept of Berit, which he elaborates on in many of his other works. Likewise, national integrity is the effect of the internal legal institutions governing the people, not of their ability to control a particular geographical area. For Chachmei Svarad, if we were in Turkey, if we were in Spain, if we were in Morocco or Yemen or Iraq or Iran, the fact that we had our own autonomous government, and we had those autonomous governments until fairly recently, it's not a thing of the past. A functional Betadin. In Morocco, the Bedin had its own police force with its own prison system. Today, when you go to the courts in Morocco, you walk inside and to the right for Muslims and to the left for Jews. There are two autonomous court systems for the Jewish people to govern themselves according to their own values, according to their own criteria. For us, that is the definition of freedom. 
not the control over some geographic place. On the top of page one in the right column, the survival of the people of Israel is a direct result of this belief. As they were losing all forms of earthly power, they became more and more aware that their national integrity was not predicated upon territorial sovereignty, and that a bureaucratic political system of authority is incompatible with the idea of Berit. It is pertinent to know that Galut, exile, in the Sephardic tradition, is principally a political concept. In its barest form, it means that the Jewish nation was not dissolved with the territorial loss of its homeland. Accordingly, the Sephardim viewed themselves as members of the Jewish nation rather than of the Jewish religion. This entire paragraph is most definitely not agreed upon by the vast majority of Jews in today's world. But this is the foundation of Sephardic philosophy. Our Sephardic Chachamim, and when we're going to deal with our legal system, especially the Puskim among Chachmei Sephard, dealt with this worldview that we are members of an autonomous Jewish nation. I know when I say that, I even think of those random YouTube videos of some guy in an American court, federal law. The federal law doesn't apply to me. I'm a citizen of the world. You know, we think about that. But that's what Am Yisrael is like. No matter where we are, we have not lawlessness. It doesn't mean we avoid uh, sending molesters or abusers to the police because we have to deal with it internally. This is not what the definition is. Don't abuse this concept. But the Jewish people, especially the Sephardim, always wished to maintain our autonomy, even if that meant that we didn't, have, we didn't enjoy the benefits of the equality that the people around us enjoyed. The theological political idea of autonomy and national integrity implies a democratic society that recognizes the law as its supreme authority. However, in order that the law should be the actual source of authority in government, there is need for a legal code formulated in precise and clear language. In order for us to have national autonomy and our own national courts, we have to have a legal code that's written clearly, precisely, that's understood by everyone. We have, the, if the United States has penal code number 123-45, Am Yisrael has Rambam, Hichot, this, Siman that, Perek that, Halakha that, Maran has Siman this, Seif that. We have our own penal codes. That one Bedin in Turkey, one Bedin in Morocco, one Bedin in Iraq, all of them share the same code. You go to a Bedin with your business partner across the sea, when you come to your home country, that Bedin recognizes the ruling of the other Bedin because they're all ruling according to the same national law that we subscribe to. Maimonides' codification of the entire system of Jewish law was designed to perform this function. The publication of the Shulchan Aruch by Maran Yosef Karo and its formal acceptance by the Sephardic communities as the supreme code of law projected in all its fullness the ideal of a democratic society first proclaimed by the Lord in Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. It is also an emphatic rejection of the bureaucratic political system that governs through casuistry and the manipulation of the law. In such a system, the people have no access to the law. The law is not the ground of authority, but its effect. It is worth pointing out that the codification of law and its formulation in precise categories and intelligible language does not impair its growth and development. This is a very important point, especially for our next year in discussing Ashkenazi rejection of Maran. When I was teaching in Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, I had the merit to teach next to an upstanding Ashkenazi Tamikhaham whose favorite sentence was to say, 
we Ashkenazim never submitted ourselves to inferior codes of law like the Mishneh Torah and the Shulchan Aruch. Meaning, we have brains, we can study the Talmud, we don't need codes of law. Dumb people need codes of law. Chacham Faur says here, because we're writing law, we're formulating it in clear and precise terms, does not mean that we're impairing its growth and development. Just like the proper formulation of the laws of physics by Newton and Einstein, Einstein did not impair the growth of science, but helped to eliminate the morass of chaos and confusion prevailing in that field. The enormous volume of legal literature produced by the Sephardic tradition, and this next three words, only Chacham Faur will write, and its superior quality testifies to the validity of our point. The fact that Chachamei Sephardi, no matter where they were, continued to write codes of law, continued to formulate clear books of law that people can read and access, proves this point that for Sephardim, having access to the law, being able to govern ourselves with law, not through manipulation, not through an inaccessible legal code, but through something that everyone could do, everyone could understand, was a key value for us. There's a culture that we live in right now. And that culture is, you don't know what to do, go ask the rabbi. You don't know what to do, go ask your local fill-in-the-blank rabbi. You don't know halakha, you don't know what you're supposed to, so go ask. It would be like saying you're driving on the freeway, the highway, and you don't know how to drive, go ask a police officer how to drive. What is the job of a police officer teaching how to drive? You have an obligation on your own to know law, to know the halakha. And our chachamim gave us clear works of halakha that are not confusing, that are very easy to understand, so that anybody at any point in time could go to any tamid chacham and say, Rabbi, you said X, Y, and Z in your derasha and the Berakneset. You told my brother, this is the halakha, but it doesn't say that in the Rambam. It doesn't say that in Maran. How could you say such a thing? Because we all have access to the law. And all of us are obligated to follow that law. And the acceptance of the Rambam and the Mishneh Torah, and I know that saying those two in the same sentence, you're familiar with a few places that contradict each other. But if you recall the words of even someone like the Chazonish, who didn't see Maran's book as so, uh, so special because it was just a copy and paste of the Rambam. So learn from the critics of Maran just how closely he followed the Rambam. The fact that we have a book that we accepted as a superior legal code tells us that this is what will maintain our national autonomy regardless of where we live. And halakha cannot just be given out to every person to do with it what they wish. It's not Play-Doh, it's not molding clay. There's a way that halakha works. There are codes in which halakha are, are, are formulated in. And so today, I wish to walk you through the fact, not an opinion, the fact that Chachmei Sfarad unanimously across the world accepted upon themselves the rulings of Maran Shulchan Aruch. But before I talk to you about the Shulchan Aruch and the birth of the Shulchan Aruch, we have to first discuss a little bit about what was the Shulchan Aruch born into? What was the world in which Maran was living in what was going on here that even forced someone like Maran to put out a code of Jewish law in an attempt to unite the Jewish people? And Bezad Hashem, we're going to begin together on page two with source one. Any questions before we get into this part? A quick question, Rabbi. Yes. Um, how, the Poskim speak about how they dealt with this idea of autonomy, but risking the possibility of isolation? Like, in other words, how did they integrate so well with the society? 
Netanel, it's a very good question. I think that until fairly recently, we weren't really given the luxury of, of not being in isolation. So we were isolated anyways. Our integration was, despite the isolation, we also managed to be integrated into the world that was surrounding us. And we engaged with the sciences, we engaged with the, the people who were academics in the fields that we were also involved in in wisdom. Uh, but that doesn't mean that on a national level that we ever were fully integrated into society. That's a fairly recent Jewish problem. I don't mean recent like in the last 50 years. David, are you saying something? Uh, no. Uh, not yet. Not yet, okay. <laughs> All right, but that, that's, for me, that's, that's how I look at that situation. On page, yeah. Now, now you're saying something. Please. Oh, very good. So I didn't come, by the way, it's a very good question. I didn't come right now to undermine the authority of rabbis. I'm a rabbi myself, so I'm not looking to, to undermine that uh, office. Uh, but there is, a, there is room. And I'll, let's just say, if I'm not going to deal with that question, I have a YouTube video about this uh, from April or March of last year. But the, the general idea is we must be educated to the best of our knowledge. And in the places that we're not yet educated in, that's why we have Tamil Chamim to consult with. Uh, when you come to Tamil Chacham, Normally the expectation should be, maybe it's not, but it should be, Chacham, I know X, Y, and Z. I know what the Al-Khas is here. I know there's a machlok, it's a three-way argument. Now I need help clarifying what should I do. This idea that we're ignorant and we rely on our ignorance, so we become experts in our, our professional lives, we become experts in raising our children, but in the thing that is the center of our life, our Judaism, we don't know much about, and we delegate our mind to somebody else, that's a dangerous thing, and I, I think that, that at any point, they're always going to be, even, even rabbis have rabbis. Chachamim always have people that they consult with. And even if the rabbi, if you want to discuss, a, 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 forgive me, a, a vertical society of chachamim that are, are in some kind of hierarchy, even the guy on top has chaverim in which he discusses Torah with them, people that, that he, he needs to engage in Torah conversation with. So I don't think that it's a lack of humility. To the contrary, it's an obligation. I, I have a responsibility, a responsibility to know, and to know when I don't know something that I have a person who I trust their thought process and doesn't answer for me, doesn't tell me what to do, but helps me think through Torah scenarios so I know how to reach that conclusion. If you want to look up something on this topic, I highly suggest the notes of uh, Rabbi Yosef Kafich Kapach on the uh, Rambam's commentary, Perkei Avot, he has a translation on Perkei Avot, on the whole idea of Asel Harav, make for yourself a rabbi, and he discusses very clearly over there what's the purpose of making for yourself a rabbi. So if I can recommend you in that direction, and uh, Sina, if you remind me, I'm happy to take a, a picture of that and send it to the group later. On page two, source one, the Rambam in Hilchot Sanhedrin. You have a generation right after the expulsion from Spain. And the Jews are scattering, and they keep moving towards countries which, which will take them. And ultimately the Jews end up in the Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire, and we end up in different countries in that region. That's where Sephardic Judaism begins to blossom again after being expelled from Spain. There and in North Africa, these are the two capitals of Sephardim, along with the Middle East. But the Middle East didn't necessarily start as exiles from Spain, so I, that's why I'm omitting that for a moment. As these Chachamim, move their way east towards Eretz Yisrael. We realize that whatever glory we had in Sepharad is at risk right now. 
we're lacking any central rabbinic academy. We're lacking the infrastructure that we had banked on for so many years. There are tremendous people who aren't. I'm sorry about that. Uh, there are tre tremendous personalities that are involved in rebuilding the Sephardic world. If there's somebody that I can recommend you look into who's not a Talmud Chacham per se, is none other than uh, uh, Donna Gracia. Donna Gracia was the, the queen of the Sephardic Jewish community. And if you want to discuss the Sephardic approaches towards Zionism, maybe in a different class, if you look up the life of Donna Gracia and how she almost single-handedly rebuilt Sephardic institutions, Sephardic yeshivot, Sephardic bataydin, Sephardic communities. She founded the first independent state of Israel in the land of Israel most people don't even know about. Uh, Dona Gracia's money that she contributed to the Sephardic Jewish community, I've heard rumors that even until the early 1920s, there were yeshivot in Tiberia and Sfat who were still operating off of her funding post the Spanish expulsion. A tremendous figure in rebuilding the infrastructure of the Jewish people. When it comes to Jewish life, the Chachamim are concerned. And there's a rabbi in Sfat, Mahari Berav. Mahari Berav is concerned with the fact that we are all over the place. There are different Jewish groups. Everyone is doing Everyone follows their own law. Everyone is doing what they want. Everybody, these people follow this halakha, these people that. Internally in the Sephardic community, there are those who are following the Rambam, those who are following the Rosh, those who still have old minhagim from the Rif. There is, is, is complete chaos in the Jewish legal scene. Mahari Berav's solution, what the Jewish people are missing, is a Sanhedrin, a Supreme Court of Jewish law. And whereas you normally wouldn't think of waking up one morning and saying, hey, let's refound the Sanhedrin. You have to imagine what kind of messianic fervor was in the air at that time. We are exilees from Spain. We've traveled almost by foot across an entire continent. We've made it to Eretz Israel. We're living in the land of Israel for the first time in thousands of years. And now, we're a group of, you know who what kind of chachamim we're living in Tzfat at this time? I mean, all these great rabbis, big chachamim, big mekubalim, Think about the names that are in Sfat at this point in time. You have Maran. You have the Mari Berav. You have the Mabit, Mari Mitran. You have the Ramak, Rabbi Moshe Kodovero. If you want to go on the, the Kabbalistah, the Ariza, Rabbi Chaim Vital, Rabbi Shlomo Halavi Alkebetz, the author of L'Chadudi. You have Rabbi Eliezer Azikri, the author of Yedid Nefesh and Sefer, uh, Sefer Haredim. It's a, it's a powerful Jewish community in Sfat. They're at the center of the Jewish world, at least as they see it. And they say, now is time, we're in the right place, the right time, the world is destroyed, we might as well give birth to the Jewish people all over again. Let's found the Sanhedrin. And finally, we'll make one court of Jewish law that all the Jewish people will accept and follow. How are you going to do that? With which legal formula can you refound the Sanhedrin? And so they look here in the Rambam, the laws of Sanhedrin, chapter 4, Halakha 11, and source 1. And the Rambam writes, in bold, it appears to me that if all of the sages in the land of Israel agree to appoint judges and to ordain them, I mean to give them formal office. These are now in the category not just of rabbis or scholars, but they have the status of simuchim. And 
ויש להם לסמוך לאחרים, they are now able to rule over a כנסות, a certain area of financial matters, and they can also ordain other people. He says, if so, why are the Chachamim so worried about this? He says, the fish Yisrael mefuzarin, v'yifshar sheyaskimu kulan. We're worried about a Sanhedrin because the Jewish people are so scattered that we're worried that we don't ever have an opportunity to bring the Jewish people back together to reconvene a Sanhedrin. And here is sitting Mahari Berav with 25 of his students in Israel. And they're saying, Rov minyan ubinyan, the majority of the Tamidei Chachamim of Eretz Israel are living here in Sfat. We have the historic opportunity to reconvene the Sanhedrin, to finally create one central powerhouse where we can rule on Jewish law, we can ordain others who will lead the Jewish people in the matters of Jewish law. And that's exactly what happened. And I cannot summarize in short. I have a little footnote in my book, Yishalom, on this topic. Uh, there are many articles that have been written. There's a book by Rabbi Yudah Leib Maimon, who was a student of Rav Kook, Shalom, who wrote a whole book about re- reconvening the Sanhedrin now in our current state of Israel. He's an unbelievable Tamikram. Uh, agree with everything he says or not, but uh, Rabbi Yudah Leib Maimon is someone that you should definitely become familiar with him in his writings. There was a big pulmus, big war and controversy. I quoted here for you from Wikipedia in uh, source two. It's a very authoritative source of Jewish information, but happened to have a good entry on this topic right here, better than if I collected all the other sources surrounding this topic. In the year 1538, Mahari Beram decides to reconvene the Sanhedrin in Tzfat. His main opponent is known as the Maharal Bach, Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib. He is the, the rabbi, chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. He hears about the Sanhedrin being reconvened in Tzfat, and he has problems with it. His first problem is, he's not even sure that the Rambam believed that this, that maybe the Rambam's wrong. Maybe this is just an opinion of the Rambam. First, number one. And we love people who say the Rambam's opinion. It's our favorite catchphrase. But this, the, this piece here was under a controversy. Does the Rambam have the right to tell us how to reconvene a Sanhedrin? Number two, I'm sitting in Yerushalayim. You didn't ask me. So all of the rabbis in Eretz Yisrael, you may think that you rabbis in Sfat are all of the rabbis in Eretz Yisrael, but I'm not part of you, and I'm in Eretz Yisrael. I'm the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. If you're going to reconvene a Sanhedrin, why would you reconvene a Sanhedrin in Sfat and not where the Sanhedrin used to be in Jerusalem? There are issues here. It's a hard time. I'm not speaking bad about any time of it's, it's very hard to read the writings and to, to try to differentiate between what is professional and what is personal. Uh, that line is blurred. Some argue in favor of the Mahal al-Bakh that he was really worried about this messianic fervor taking over Judaism and that Jewish people would think they already lived in the era of the Messiah and then all kinds of terrible things would happen after that as history has shown us to be true. Either way, I'm not here to say who was right and who was wrong. Mahali Berav started his Sanhedrin and he gave Hasmacha, he ordained four Chachamim on the bottom of page two in bold. Rabbi Yosef Karo, that's Maran. Rabbi Moshe Mitrani, that's the Mabit. Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, that's the Ramak. Rabbi Yosef Sagiz. Rabbi Moshe Mitrani and Maran, and maybe if we have a chance in one of our following classes when we discuss the reactions to Maran Shukhan Aruch, the Mabit was one of the main opponents of Maran. He was a classmate of his. He was a dear friend of his. In the writings that we have between the two of them, Maran is much nicer to the Mabit than the Mabit is to Maran. 
The Mabit had a very hard time with the personality worship of the people who were surrounding Maran. And this may lead, by the way, in future conversations, to why Maran maybe wasn't accepted entirely. The students of Maran, until today, we call Maran, Maran Malka, our master, our king. You can see Hamelech Beshulchano Hatao. You're going to see people call Maran the king. I mean, some really intense phrases that previously weren't used in Sephardic communities surrounding personalities. And the Mabit wants to make it his point to call out Maran on these issues. He has a very sharp letter. I don't want to get into this topic now, but a very sharp letter in which he accuses Maran of being incorrect in halakha. And he said, I would ask Maran's students, but none of them are even smart enough to answer the question. He, he is sharp. Mabit is a sharp chacham. But that's how you know he was Sephardic, because who else says such mean things about other people and then writes them in books? There's a certain, a certain personality that exists here in the Sephardic community. Nonetheless, it seems that after this controversy rose, the members of the Sanhedrin disbanded, and there is much debate among historians whether Maran continued to maintain that he was part of a Sanhedrin or not. The fact that he doesn't mention it in the Shulchan Aruch at all is very curious. Maran doesn't mention his Sanhedrin in any of his legal writings. On the other hand, perhaps the fact that he wrote the Shulchan Aruch as a code of Jewish law may stem from the fact that he viewed himself as a member of the Sanhedrin who could author such a book. Nonetheless, that only went on for about four more generations. The last Chacham that I know of who was ordained by people who were ordained, by people who were ordained by Mahari Berav, is none other than, do you know who he is? The last of the Musmachim? Anyone? He has a commentary on the En Yaakov. If you open up the En Yaakov, you'll see him there. His name is Rabbi Yoshiahu Pinto. Not, not the one who was in jail. Uh, I'm talking about a long time ago. Rabbi Yoshiahu Pinto. Rabbi Yoshiahu Pinto, Shalom, was known as the Rif, or to differentiate him from the, the Rabbi Tzach Fasi, they call him the Riaf, Reish Yud Alefei, that he was the last of the Musmachim who received ordination. We don't know what happened to the trail from then. And it seems like they realized, listen, if the Jewish people are not on board with the Sanhedrin, what is the point of having a central supreme court of Jewish law that is neither central nor supreme? And that dream, the dream of uniting the Jewish people behind the Sanhedrin, very quickly fell apart, thanks to controversy surrounding that episode. It could have been a tremendous thing. There are Chachamim in the generation who said that if that would have happened, who knows? Maybe we would have never gone into exile again after that. I can't tell you what if. All I can tell you is that it didn't happen. But it's in that world, in that feeling of, we're going to unite the Jewish people. We're going to save Am Yisrael by giving us back our autonomy, by establishing a central legal authority. That is where Maran gives birth to this idea of writing the Shulchan Aruch. That's where it's born into. You cannot learn about Maran and the acceptance of the Shulchan Aruch without the context in which the Shulchan Aruch was created. I mentioned here in source three, Afkat Ochel is a book of responsa from Maran. Maran writes there very clearly that he normally doesn't like answering people's halachic questions. He says the only two times he answers people's questions. No, oh, it's not, no, actually not, it's not the source here. Afkat Ochel, Maran is telling us about his yeshiva and how busy he is in yeshiva and how he doesn't have time to answer people's questions because he's so busy with his yeshiva. I found last night a gem from the writings of Rabbi Zechariah, Yichye, al Sari who was a Yemenite traveler in the 1500s going through Tzfat. And he records the scene of watching Maran's yeshiva. It's so, it takes him aback. He writes about it with such majesty. He writes about him, Hamaor, Hagadol, Hachacham, Yosef Karo. 
this great, brilliant light, this awesome light, Maran, he talks about how the students would sit around him, how they would discuss some tremendous areas of Torah. It's a very special piece, which I'm not going to do right now, but I put it there for you to look into on your own. Maran was busy teaching people actively, not just writing books. Maran was engaged with Talmidim to make sure that even if the Sanhedrin had fallen apart, that there would be legal authorities who could guide the Jewish people into the future. In the Bet Yosef, in the Shut Bet Yosef, it's a source five. Maran writes that it's famous that I don't answer people's halachic questions except for two cases. Either if two people, the two uh, sides, choose me to be their their arbitrator, their mediator, or if one of them asks me when I'm sitting on the Bedadin, and because of that I have to answer their question. I'm in a, a position in which I must answer people's questions. But I don't look for fame, I'm not looking for honor, and I'm not looking to become someone's central halachic authority. What changes between then and the introduction to the Bet Yosef? I don't know. I don't know the time period of these letters. But Maran in source 6 on page 3 lays out the formula for how he decides halakha. After I've said all these things to you, says Maran. I wish to decide, to make decisions, rulings between all of the different opinions floating around the Jewish community. I want to make sure, like the Torah says, that we'll have one law, one Torah. How long can the Jewish people continue to be Ashkenazim and Sephardim? Which type of Sephardim? Which type of Ashkenazim? Where do the Yemenites come into? Well, all of the different groups. We need to have order in the Jewish community. We can establish autonomy. If we can establish autonomy, then we will no longer technically be in the terrible exile that we find ourselves in right now. And he says, but the problem is there are so many opinions. Who's going to be the one to stick his head inside and decide between the different opinions of halakha? He said, and more than that, not only is it impossible, but it's not the correct way to study Torah, to spend your whole day between opinions, between opinions, and not having any clarity. And therefore, at the bottom of source 6, therefore, I agreed to myself, because when it boils down to it, there are three pillars of halakha which the Jewish people rely on, which the Jewish people lean on in matters of halakha. Halohem Harif, that's Rabbi Tzchak Al-Fasi from Morocco, Al-Fasi from Fez. Harambam, that's Rabbi Moshe Ben-Maimon, also from North Africa. The Harosh, how does the Rosh get into this equation? What is the Rosh doing in a Sephardic group? That's a rhetorical question, not a rhetorical question, that's a, uh, answer this question please. Okay, that's why Maran incorporates the Rosh, but, but how did the Rosh even come to be part of this conversation? What's so special about him to the Sephardim? Very good. The Rosh is the... Probably maybe the first time in history where an Ashkenazi rabbi gets a Sephardic pulpit. And so he became the Ashkenazi rabbi of a Sephardic pulpit. And we know from those who are familiar with the politics surrounding that whole story and everything that happens afterwards that 
it didn't go over so peacefully. It wasn't a peaceful transition of power, and there was a lot of power that people were getting involved in at the time. That's so not my conversation for today. Uh, but if we mentioned Hanfor earlier, then in horizontal society, there's a whole chapter, The Folly of Israel, which discusses this at length. Also, in anti-Maimonidean demons, you can find an entire conversation about this as well, but it's not in the scope of today's conversation. Nonetheless, there are many Sephardim who their rabbi was the Rosh. He was the chief rabbi of their community, their Horaot. We have already in North Africa entire communities that follow the Rosh when it comes to matters of halakha. People like to blame the Moroccans. I don't know how this happened. That The Moroccans have all kinds of Ashkenazi rulings in their halakhot because of the influence of Chabad in the 1950s in Morocco. You know, I'm taking a tangent again. I, I my whole life take tangents. Rabbi Shalom Asas has a letter to the Chabad Shluchim who came to, the Shlichei Chabad that came to Morocco. You can find this at the beginning of the Moroccan Avotenu Siddur, now printed by Koren. Rabbi Atiyah, who wrote that book, passed away very recently. And he writes to them, says, listen, you can come to Morocco. We let you. You want to teach Judaism? Fine. You want to... But if you're going to begin to teach your ways here, then you can rest assured that we're going to put you back on a boat and send you where you came from. And this attitude of you don't have the right to invade our community theologically was very intent. Rabbi Shalom Masas stood as a barrier. It cannot be the reason. Rather, it's much older than the 1950s. The Rosh is the rabbi of Spanish Jews who find themselves later on in North Africa. And that's where these Ashkenazi customs find themselves in North Africa. And they are as Sephardic in terms of, uh, of age as many other Sephardic parallel customs that we find in the Jewish community. So he said, I'm going to take the three rabbis. This is Maran's famous three pillars of halakha rule, which if Rambam and Rif agree and the Rosh disagrees, we rule like those two. If the Rif and the Rosh agree and the Rambam disagrees, then Maran will choose to override the Rambam and rule according to the other two. What happens when they split three ways and they don't agree at all? Maran has a whole formula how he deals with that and there are those who've argued that it's not as consistent as it should be. But Maran puts this semi-democratic system into play in which he only looks at the writings of these three Chachamim, even though he discusses everybody in his Bet Yosef, and that's how he rules the Halachot and the Shulchan Aruch. Many people, including the Raman, didn't appreciate that these were the only three rabbis you narrowed Judaism down to, and there were those who argued, again, for our next Shiu, B'zad Hashem. For right now, this is how Maran writes the Shulchan Aruch. And this is really going to be the key in discussing why Maran Shulchan Aruch sometimes is different than the Rambam, for the simple reason that the Rambam can be overridden in Maran's eyes by two rabbis who disagree with him. After Maran writes his tremendous work, the Bet Yosef, which I don't know how he did without the Bariline Responsa Project or Googling things or whatever else it was, and Maran did this entirely on his own, with his own head, in his own two hands. Maran writes an abridged version of his Bet Yosef, because it's not enough to have this intellectual book of, of teachings, of argue, different arguments on the tool. Rather, Maran, it's the codified halakha, like we said, so everybody can have access to it. So courts of law can actually refer to it. And that's why Maran writes his Shulchan Aruch. Literally means the set table. He's setting a table for the Jewish people. Come and eat. Everything is ready. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to help in the kitchen. You don't have to cut. You don't have to clean. Just come and sit. And Maran writes the following in his introduction. To the Shulchan Aruch. I cannot tell you how many Shulchan Aruchs I have seen that don't have Maran's introduction to his own book inside of them. It's an unbelievable thing that people skip introductions to books. Sometimes they don't even print them anymore because nobody knows Maran wrote introductions to the Shulchan Aruch. Maran writes here on page 3 in the left column, I, I see 
כי טוב ללכוד שושני ספירי המרב בדרך קצרה ולשון צח וכולל, יפה ונעים, למען תהיה תורת השם תמימה שגורה בפי כל איש ישראל. I wanted to write a clear, concise, condensed book of halacha, so all the Jewish people can know this book. Not only the regular lay person, even when they ask a Torah scholar or something in halacha, he shouldn't stutter and not know what the answer is. He could say, sister, you are, I know, this is a teaching from the rabbis who say, you should only rule a halacha if it's clear to you, as clear as it is that you cannot marry your sister. It's a strange teaching, but it's a play on words from Shir HaShirim. And therefore Maran says, because he wanted everyone to know the Shulchan Aruch, he wrote it not in four volumes like you have it today, but rather, I wanted to break it up into 30 parts. Everybody should study one part of this book, one chapter, one section, uh, every day of the month. So it turns out that every month you finish the entire Shulchan Aruch. And it could be said about you, how praiseworthy is one who comes here in his Torah, learning is in his hand. If it takes people three years to go through a smicha program and, and uh, uh, two dozen chapters of Shulchan Aruch, you can ask yourself how Maran expected that people would study Orach Haim, Yoreh Da'a, Evan Ha'ezer, Choshel Mishpat, every 30 days, so that by the time you finish the year, from now until next year, when we learn together, you would already finish the Shulchan Aruch 12 times. Maran had uh, high hopes for Am Yisrael, and he believed that it was possible. And he wrote his Shulchan Aruch, not intending that it should look like what we have a Shulchan Aruch today. When you open up the Shulchan Aruch today, you have half a sentence from the Shulchan Aruch and then 3,000 commentaries surrounding the Maran. And so every word is now taken apart. What did Maran really mean? What did Maran really say? What did Maran... That's the way that Jewish people work. You have a very clear Rambam and then they add 40 commentaries to the Rambam. You have a very clear Shulchan Aruch and they add all these commentaries to Shulchan Aruch. But Maran intended the book to be a small book made up of 30 pamphlets that you could finish every single day and so that every month you would finish the entire Shulchan Aruch, and that by the end of the year, every person in the Jewish people would know halakha backwards and forwards. Instead of the Daf Yomi cycle, which nobody knows anything from, I see people the whole life learning Daf Yomi, even the Daf Yomi from yesterday, they don't remember what they learned. Imagine, not Shulchan Aruch once every month, but Shulchan Aruch once every year. Instead of doing it every day, a chapter, do every month. Every two years you'll finish the Shulchan Aruch. Imagine how much halakha Am Yisrael would know. Maran has a unique book on page 3 in the bottom left called the Magid Mishneh. It's curious because this book is attributed to Maran. We don't actually know if uh, Maran wrote this book or not. It's assumed that he did, but the son of Maran doesn't seem to... When he lists all of his father's books, he doesn't record this book as one of his father's books. Nonetheless, for the Kabbalists among us, this book is very exciting because this book is a record of all the, the, the conversations that Maran had with this type of spirit called the Magid, uh, a heavenly messenger, conversations Maran had with him backwards and uh, all, all throughout his life. This angel told Maran who he would marry, what happened, his wife would die, his children, all kinds of interesting things happened in that book. But we already find in the book Magid Mishneh, that he says here, and the angel tells Maran, Vayan in source 8, Ki masarta nafshecha al chazarat atarat asmicha liyoshna, because you have restored the crown of ordination of the Sanhedrin to its place. Tiske liot musmach mikol chachmei Eretz Yisrael. You will merit to be ordained as a chacham by all the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael. Umichachmei chutz la'aretz, and even the rabbis outside of Israel will accept you as their rabbi. Vayal yadcha achzir asmicha liyoshna, and through you I'll return the original smicha to its place. 
and I will let you merit to finish your work, the Beit Yosef and the Shulchan Aruch. And that's exactly what happens. The next part here is very, he promises him he'll go to Eretz Yisrael. He promises him that he will die Al-Kiddush Hashem. Maran never dies Al-Kiddush Hashem, but I guess not everything the angel tells Maran is going to be true. <coughs> Let's look together at source 9. I won't say it, uh, I won't read it inside, but Rabbi Shlomo Halavi Al Kabetz. I believe that the record that we have of this is later on in the writings of the Shla. Rabbi Shayao Halavi Horowitz records a unique Shavuot night experience where Maran and his chavarim are sitting around the table. They're learning Torah. At a certain point, Maran collapses on the table and out of his mouth begins to speak the Shekhinah and teaches them Torah the whole night. This is where the Kabbalists developed this minhag of staying up all night on Shavuot uh, because of Maran and his friends who stayed up the whole night. Uh, but you already see the attitude towards Maran is one of not a regular person. He's not a regular rabbi. Whether you accept these accounts or not, the people surrounding Maran viewed him as a yachid, as an individual, as Arisha b'chavura. He was the lion of the group. He was the one. If anybody was going to write a code of Jewish law, it was going to be Maran. The Chida, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, writes so himself. Pretty honest in his Maran Chida, Harav Chida, he writes in his book Shema Gedolim. Anyone know what Shema Gedolim is? Have you heard of the book Shema Gedolim? Shema Gedolim is the Chida's encyclopedia. According to legend, he was put in prison and he, wrote, he didn't have what to study, so he wrote an encyclopedia. Not accurate, but he wrote this encyclopedia in a very short amount of time. Essentially, every name of every rabbi he had ever heard about or read about in one volume, and a second volume of every book of Torah that he'd ever read, ever come across in anybody's library. And it's an encyclopedia, one of books and one of Torah personalities. And you could, and there are some mistakes there. A man wrote a book very quickly, there can be mistakes, or the historical information that we have is not available uh, to him, uh, wasn't available to him. The Chida writes in his encyclopedia There were three rabbis who were fitting to write the Shulchan Aruch, meaning a central code of Jewish law. And he mentions who they were. And what happened was, that from heaven they decreed on Maran that he should be the one to write the book because of his unique humility. And Maran, you see throughout his writings, is tremendously humble. Oh, Arav Dweck, Shalom Alechem, welcome. Sina, now you reminded me of my story before. Uh, I'm going to share a story, Rabbi Dweck, if I, if, with your permission. They say once that there was a rabbi giving a derashan, Parashat Shavua, and he was speaking. And into the back of the Bedem Midrash walks in Professor Nechama Libowitz. She came to get a book from the back of the Bedem Midrash. And uh, she was getting the book and she realized that the rabbi stopped speaking. So she turns to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, please continue. The rabbi says, I can't speak. He says, no, no, please, I insist you speak. He said, Professor Libowitz, can you imagine after 120 years, we're in the next world. And uh, I'm giving a class on Parashat Noach. And then all of a sudden walks in Noach. So you think I'm going to give a class on Parashat Shavu in front of Noach? Uh, I'm in a unique situation. How could I teach anything about Torah in front of Rabbi Dweck? It isn't in the <laughs> Rob exaggerates way too much, and all I have to do is apologize that, that I would never be late to the Shavuot unless I absolutely had to. So please continue. <laughs> do I have your permission to teach? Todaraba, <laughs> okay. Rabbanit Devora, talk about intimidating. 
Rabbi Dweck is a hero out here. Baruch Hashem. In source 11, he also talks a little bit more about some divine desire from Maran Shulchan Aruch to be the central work of Halakha. And I here... Just, sorry to just doubt. I was going to just say, you could, we can go over time if that's okay with you. We're not in a rush. I've had a few messages from people saying, if we can continue, please, let's do so. Oh, I didn't even realize the time was. So let's do this. I'm going to try to finish as many of these sources as I can, uh, but I want to finish within a reasonable amount of time. So if you have to go, please feel free to go, but I'm, I will continue. So I'm, for me, it's the middle of the day. Thank you. Thank you. It's for you that it's the middle of the night. Uh, so here we have, I collected a number of sources here of different Sephardic Chachamim around the world who said this quote of that we accepted upon ourselves the rulings of Maran. And like I told you that today is all about discussing the fact that they were accepted. Exceptions to this acceptance we'll discuss at a different point in time. But for right now, just to establish the fact of how many Chachamim from different places accepted upon themselves the rulings of Maran HaShulchan So we have here Harav HaManiach in the book Halachot Ketanot. He writes here about his grandfather, Harav HaMagen. He was the Rishon Lezion, Rabbi Moshe Galanti. He writes about him, Shebuchol Eretz Yisrael, in all of the land of Israel, in source 12. Uvechol Arei HaMizrach, in all of the eastern cities, Bechol Surya, Turkia, Mitzrayim, all of Turkey, Egypt, Syria. Vigroten and all the surrounding areas, kiblu alehem vadzaram horot maran rabbeinu Yosef Karozatan. They accepted upon themselves the rulings of Maran. You see in source 13, the Chida makes mention of Rabbi Chaim Abu Lafia. If you read the writings in that period surrounding Rabbi Chaim Abu Lafia, he wasn't just another rabbi. For the, the people around him, he was a tremendous personality. And his word carried a lot of weight. Veda, you should know, shekibalti mizikne Torah vira, that I received in tradition from the elders of Torah and, and awe of Hashem, ששמעו מפי קדוש הרב הגדול, מורנו הרב חיים אבולפיה, that they heard from הרב אבולפיה, שקבלה בידו, that it's a, a rule in his hands, uh, that a tradition in his hands, שכלל מרן בפסק הלכה ללכת אחר, שלושה עמודי בית ישראל, הריף, הרמב״ם והראש, הסכימו קרוב למתיים רבנים בדורו. That it, with this formula of מרן that we discussed earlier, to follow these three pillars of halakha, almost 200 rabbis in his generation agreed with this rule. And it was a, a special teaching in this rabbi's mouth. That anybody who does, follows a halakha like Maran is not following one opinion. It's not Maran's opinion, but it's the opinion of 200 chachamim of his generation, contemporaries and those who came afterwards who agree with Maran. This is important when you start to play in factors like how many poskim can argue with Maran. And if you have five rabbis who argue with Maran, does Maran remain an independent opinion? And you will see Chachamim will pull this out and say, no, Maran is not one opinion, Maran is 200 opinions. So until you'll find me, and, and for those which numbers of opinions matter, we know the halakha is not necessarily determined by numbers, but rather by logic, and I'm not discussing that today either. But this is a, a key factor in that conversation. How many Chachamim are we really ruling like with Maran? I quoted to you here a few other places, Dashla, who's an Ashkenazi rabbi in Yerushalayim. Dashla has a unique, I once saw a diary entry showed to me by Rabbi Yitzchak Shuraki in Yerushalayim. A diary entry, a letter, I don't remember what it was, about Dashla Kadosh. Much of the modern world thinks that Hebrew was, you know, it was, a, was a dead language and only began to be spoken with Eliezer ben Yehuda. As Hara Peretz, Mori Verbi always says, that Eliezer ben Yehuda deserves a lot of respect. Rav Kuk thought of him very highly. He did do a lot to restore Hebrew to the Jewish people. 
But in the Sephardic communities, Hebrew was a spoken language. We have records from the Jews living years and years and years ago in Eretz Israel who spoke in Hebrew, not just any Hebrew, but spoke in Sephardic Hebrew. The Shlach Kadosh writes when he became the rabbi in Yerushalayim, he was so excited to give his Friday night speech in an Ashkenazi synagogue in Hebrew for the first time in his life. And not just in any Hebrew, but in Sephardic Hebrew. And that was something that he was very proud of. He was very impressed with that. I quote a number of other rabbis here who discuss this. If you look in source 17, Talumut Lev mentions that perhaps the reason why we call Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo, Maran, our master, Maran is also an acronym for Rashi Tevot of Mimatan Rabbanan Nismach, that he was ordained by 200 rabbis, or at least accepted by 200 rabbis, and that's why you sometimes see Maran being written, Mem Resh and apostrophe Nun, it's meant to play into this acronym that we've discussed here. In source 19, Rabbi Yosef Yedid writes also that somebody who follows Maran, Maran, Kimisho Rabbanim, he has 200 Chachamim on his side. Rabbi Yosef Molcho in source 20, he writes something fascinating. It's not just accepting Maran when Maran says what he says. Vafilu poskim kemoto cholkim alav. And even when the Rama and a, and a thousand, not no, a, a thousand poskim like the Rama, meaning Rama is a posek with stature, not as some rabbi. A poseg, a thousand poskim argue with Maran. Anu b'nei Sevarad, batar Maran garinan. We, the, the children of Svarad, we follow Maran. Henekula vehenekumra. Whether we are going to leniency or to stringency, I think oftentimes in the Sephardic world you see people, today at least, who love to follow Maran when Maran complicates something, when something becomes very strict according to Maran. But there's all kinds of things that Maran is what you would, I don't like the word lenient, but what Maran is more lenient than what other people do, chas v'shanom, that you should do what Maran says. The examples off the top of my head, if I could think in the laws of meat and milk, and Maran talks about eating dairy after having chicken soup broth, clear chicken soup broth. Maran, according to Maran, it's, that's fine. There's no, if you would find, not, I don't even know of one, I don't know, uh, of what he rules for his community. I don't know of anyone who would do such a thing. They'd be terrified to do such Cheat on their taxes? Of course they can cheat on their taxes. Steal from their next door neighbor, Batuach. But, but uh, have uh, dairy after chicken soup, you might as well uh, eat a pig on Yom HaKippurim. It's, it's, clearly this rule of following Maran has its exceptions, and that's, again, like I mentioned, in a different shiur. Rabbi Shlomo Laniado in Aram Soban, he writes that there's, you don't bring proof from Chachamim who argue with Maran. We reject entirely those Chachamim who argue with Maran. Rabbi Yaakov Al-Ghazi introduces an entire uh, conversation of, of Marad De'atra. He's the master of the place. So the way halakha works, Marad De'atra. Uh, when I'm in London and someone asks me a halakha question, I would never answer a halakha question unless you want to kill me. Because uh, someone who rules halakha in front of the Marad De'atra, if I would rule halakha in a place, even if he's not listening, where Rabbi Dweck is, I don't have permission to, no, this is not a tarof, no exaggeration here. I don't have permission to answer a halakha question in someone else's territory. What happens here is you find these Sephardic rabbis extending this concept of Maradatra not just to an entire region, but posthumously. So we don't have, at least traditionally, when someone dies, that they still maintain their status of Maradatra. He's not here anymore. With all due respect, Maran isn't living in Eretz Israel. We're not from that group of Jews who are rabbis or still alive. And because of that, it's a, unique, it's a unique thing that you find, and there are many books and essays that have been written on how did Maran suddenly get posthumous authority for a different time and a different conversation. Uh, Marit Al-Ghazi and Simchat Yom Tov introduces this term of nohagin lifsoke Maran. Our custom is to rule according to Maran. 
And that leads into this conversation of, is following Maran a law? Is that a custom? What exactly is a custom? How, how do you define that? And what if I have a, a bona fide law and now I just have a custom to follow Maran? There are others who wrote articles about that as well. In source 26, the Bikhain Palaji, in a number of these sources actually, discusses, he writes here in source 26, it's known in the whole world that we've accepted on ourselves to follow everything according to Maran. Even if all the Kharunim in the book argue with Maran, we still follow Maran. You should know this is not the practice today in the Sephardic community. In my Ben Amidash, yes. But uh, for sure, I teach here in, in our Kolal, I teach often the writings of Chacham Uvdi Shalom. And uh, there are often times, Chacham Yosef will say a rule, uh, which we'll talk in the class on exceptions. When two rabbis, two poskim, argue with Maran regarding to making a blessing, so Sephardim no longer recite that blessing. There are instances in which Sephardim don't follow this rule of a thousand people argue with Maran, we still follow Maran. Uh, and the other way around, sometimes there are situations where Maran says it's forbidden to do something, but the Mekubalim say to do something, and you find the Sephardim in an interesting bind. Again, we'll discuss that in a future shiu. I quoted here a number of different sources that just continue to make this point. In source 31, the Ben Ishchai, Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, writes in his book, Rav Palim, these shalut v'chuvot are very dear to me. There was a time in my Bera Knesset where every Shabbat we would go through one teshuvah. Uh, okay, there are some things there that are just, you know, I've, if you've never seen before shalut v'chuvot in Kabbalah, uh, it's, it's worth looking, don't worry, you want, just like me, you won't understand anything you read over there. But I never heard of someone else who wrote shalut v'chuvot in Kabbalah. Uh, Rav Palim was a halakha, he says, Even if a hundred acharonim argue with Maran, we don't listen to them. Even if you're going to lose a lot of money, and it's worth ruling like someone else, we don't do it. He uses this language of we're obligated to follow Maran. And I ask for those of you who have time afterwards to sit down with yourself and juggle these terms. Is Maran the Maran data? Is that why we follow him? Even though he's dead? What if I live outside of Israel? What if I live outside of a Sephardic community? Do we follow Maran because of the power of minhag, whatever that mysterious power is? Do we follow Maran? We're obligated. What is it exactly that obligates us in following Maran? Chacham B'vodei Yosef, perhaps in the last generation, was the champion of trying to restore Maran as the central theme, uh, the central book of Halakha to, to Am Yisrael. And let's be honest, that as much as Chacham B'vodei Yosef would speak this way to Sevaradim, Chacham uh, Yosef was no stranger to the fact that he really believed that Ashkenazim, especially those who live in Eretz Yisrael, should also follow Maran Shulchan Aruch. In that regard, Moriah Rav Peretz agrees almost entirely. Uh, I've quoted for you a, a number of sources here from Yabi Omer in Source 32, um, as well as in Source 33. I just thought it was curious if I could write here. Uh, in 33, he mentions about Ashkenazim. He's talking about an Ashkenazi woman coming to Eretz Yisrael and reciting a blessing over something that Maran rules you cannot recite a blessing over. And he's appalled. How could you say in Eretz Yisrael that an Ashkenazi person can continue following their own practices when in Eretz Yisrael they have to follow Maran al-Shukhan This led to controversy not just with Ashkenazim. Of course Ashkenazim rejects the, reject the stance. Uh, but by the Yemenite Jewish community, the Yemenites when they came to Israel had tremendous wars even with the predecessors of Chambod Yosef. How much authority does Maran have over our life? For 2,000 years, we're in exile, following the Rambam, now we have to come here and give in to the Shulchan Aruch, for which reason? But he writes here at the end, Yadu'a ma shekadav achida, the chida writes, Shosefaradi shaoseh maaseh la'akel be'ezeh inyan kedat rama, hefech p'sak Maran, 
that if a, a Sephardi follows the Rama against Maran in an area of leniency, he has to do Teshuvah and ask for atonement for following a different halakha than Maran. And that brings me to my last two sources for today. And if I can, to summarize before I say these two sources. The power of Maran Shulchan Aruch is not just a random book of halakha. It's not another code of Jewish law. For Sephardim, like we mentioned earlier, from Chacham Fa'u, this became the national code of Jewish law for the Sephardim, at least. And I would argue, and that's for my class next time about Ashkenazim and its acceptance, that really everywhere, everywhere, where you go, any better midrash you go to in the world, any better Knesset you go to in the world, any book of halakha you'll read in the world, Maran is part of that process. Any, any smicha program, you know, a rabbi study, they study the writings of Maran. Whether they follow it or not is a different conversation. But Maran has become the bedrock of halakha. By Sephardim, this was something that caused a tremendous amount of unity following the exile of Spain, which, which led to chaos. And that chaos was solved by Maran Shulchan Aruch, at least for many hundreds of years. Like I said, you can go to a court in, in Syria and then end up with your business partner in Turkey, which would uphold the ruling of that Beradin, because they followed the same penal code. And you come to Morocco, it's, an entire, it's a different continent. And over there, the Chachamim would give you the same ruling because of the same code of Jewish law. And like we mentioned earlier, following a code of law, having a central code of law, better word than following, does not stunt someone's creativity. It does not stunt a person's ability to think in halakha differently. There's a book that I know many of you have read. Uh, Professor Tzvi Zohar has a book, uh, Rabbinic Creativity in the Modern Middle East. And we're used to hearing about a lot of creative chachamim in Morocco, or Yosef Masas and others. But here he shows you that in other places, which are considered more conservative per se in halakha, especially because of influence of Kabbalah in those places, were just as creative while still having and accepting the authority of Maran Shulchan Aruch on themselves. It's a misnomer to say that the Sephardim are unable to be creative in halakha because we are bound to Maran. Being bound to Maran allows us to create the type of communities which have certain standards that are accepted across the world. The value of that cannot be... I can't share... Think about the way the world works today. In my kila here in San Diego, I'm proud to say that in my Bera Knesset, it's the only Bera Knesset I know of. You can argue it's easy to do with the amount of people we have. This is the only Bera Knesset in which everybody eats in everybody's house. Everybody. I eat in everybody's house. We all follow the same standard of everything, not just the conformity. There are different standards in my community. But the famous Rambam, I think I taught this when I was in Rabbi Kadaz Bera Knesset, that we have a minhag, an old minhag, that we Jews trust each other. Other Jews go to other Jewish people's houses. Hamitarech. It's in Malabayit, B'chol Makom, Chozman, every place, every time. Jews trust each other. We trust each other because we're working as the same community. The fact that there are different borders between us, that's not important to us. The Jewish community of the United States and of Canada are one community that are divided by a non-Jewish border. We should have the same central Jewish government. And we don't. And that creates problems. My rabbi on source 34 writes, Kodem, before I say anything, it's a book of halakha he wrote to rabbis. I, I have to share frustration, the pain of upright Torah scholars who follow roads that are not correct. There's a path which the Jewish community of today follows. 
הם ריבוי הדעות והספקות והחששות העוברות גבולות צדק היושר והאמת. In today's world, you ask a rabbi a question, it's better not to. Well, there's an opinion like this, there's an opinion like that, there's, there's a hundred opinions. We have this mentality of, we have to follow all the opinions we possibly can. There's no clarity anymore. And sometimes, those doubts, they're not even truthful, they're not honest. They surpass what's normal. All of a sudden it's become controversial to teach halakha the way it's written in the Shulchan Aruch. When I first came to Los Angeles to give shiurim, I have a rule when I speak outside of my community, I don't say anything that wasn't written down in the Shulchan Aruch. If it's not written, I won't say it. Even if I have an opinion, I don't say it. And then I realized how controversial it is in the year 2020 to just quote Shulchan Aruch. That's not mainstream Judaism, that's not the communal standard, all kinds of words get thrown at you. We are intimidated. We are too afraid to follow the code of Jewish law that all of our chachamim, our parents and grandparents followed. They had no problem doing that. So who's going to bully us? Do you remember the first thing we said? There's two choices. There's a legal system where the law is the ground of authority, or we can give ourselves into manipulation. And that's where the Jewish community lives right now. We're being manipulated and bombarded from all angles because we're too afraid to follow what Halakha says. And this brings me to my last quote for tonight. And I hope in my Shiviti Bet Midrash UK to actually do this entire introduction together. There's a book which you gave to Am Yisrael. So you Jews of, of the United Kingdom have many things to be proud of. Uh, and for whatever reason, in some circles, this book is given all kinds of interesting reputation. So much so, uh, Rabbi Dweck, maybe one day you'll explain to me why, but I, I recently bought a, a new edition of the Keter Shem Tov, of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. And in the, such a chutzpah, and, and I don't know what even motivates the editor to print a book and then write such a thing. He writes, oh, I have it here in front of me. Uh, in, in the beginning of the book, there's a little warning. And the warning says that you should just be, you should know that this book contains many strange and unusual statements. And the only reason we've even reprinted this book, meaning it's better, it shouldn't have been reprinted, we've only reprinted it because it's the only source of many customs that we have, and if we don't print it, then we won't have the source of those minhagim. But you know, reader, beware. How do you print a book of a gagin and then write such a nonsensical thing? That's Judaism of 2020. If you want to ask, that's all of it in a nutshell. The face of our generation is like a chutzpah to show to a previous generation. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, and through his writings, I've become familiar with the way he thought. It's different than the way we think in our Ben Amilash, but it's special. It's, 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 it's a special chacham that you, you gave birth to. He has a beautiful introduction to the third section of his Keter Shem Tov, which that's what I hope to do together in the Shiviti Ben Amilash, in a different class. And he talks about the need to have a Shulchan Aruch. And he writes these words, and it's part of a much longer piece that We'll quote it a different day. Kol zeheveti lefanecha. I quoted all of this to you. Leman tedas that you should know at kama min haperud nimtza ben elu ashte edot. That how different, how separated are the two groups of Jews, Sephardim and Ashkenazim. And he, he, the stories he related were he was asked by congregants if they're allowed to eat at an Ashkenazi person's house. And his Sephardic, uh, and he had an Ashkenazi Jew ask him if he's allowed to go to a wedding of a Sephardic Jew. It's, it's a community divided down the middle. 
וכמה הן הבלבול והמבוכה הביאה בין שני שבטי ישראל, שזה אוסר זה מתיר. How much confusion and מבוכה, perplexion, has been brought to the Jewish people when we say, what this person says is forbidden, this one says is okay. Every halakha, Sephardim can eat this, Ashkenazim can't. Ashkenazim can do this on Shabbat, Sephardim can't. What is it? Are we one people with one Torah and one Mount Sinai, or did we receive two Torahs on Mount Sinai? One for Sephardim and one for Ashkenazim. We have two gods almost. You know how halachot are in, in the Sidu? In the, in the, in halakha? How many halachot we have? I'm thinking about the Sidu because in halachichot fila we have a law that you can't pray in two different directions. People shouldn't walk by a synagogue and they should see that Jews are praying to two different gods. Look at Am Yisrael, two different gods. You're lucky that we have two gods. If you make a list of how many types of Jews we have in the world today and how many gods they have or some of them don't even have gods, we're talking about Am Yisrael, maybe the most pagan people on earth. There's nothing that unites us. And the Rabbi Shem Tov is worried. And every Posek chooses whichever opinion is closer to, his, uh, to what he thinks is right. The Torah wears sackcloth and the Torah cries and says, you made me into a thousand Torot. And people lose their faith. Which type of Jews lose their faith? Those Jews that are, they're the, on the outliers of the Jewish community. They look at those rabbis fighting with each other all day. They look at those Jewish communities who don't eat with each other. I don't keep kosher, but I see you guys don't trust each other either. I don't keep Shabbat, but I see you don't believe in each other's Shabbat either. We're ruining Am Yisrael for Am Yisrael. Barili, it's clear to me, this is clear to me, the motivation of Maran. That this is the reason why Maran took upon himself the burden of writing these books. There was only one goal for Maran. To unite the Jewish people into one people. Like the Torah says, there should be only one law for you and for the stranger who lives with you in Eretz Yisrael. In his book, the Bet Yosef, Maran had the opportunity to give us the ability to see the grand picture of halakha, the way it's presented in all of the sources, until Maran. And he opened up the entry for anyone who wants to understand how halakha works and how it's ruled. And he acquired for himself a reputation among the Chachmei Hanacha. That no one else merited the popularity of their book since Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah in Har Sinai. So it's a huge statement to make. That comes Moshe Rabbeinu in Har Sinai, and the next book in the chain is Maran Shukhan In terms of acceptance and being widespread in Am Yisrael. And then he levels a critique, and this is really my question for you for next week. When the Ramah comes along, and he put his tablecloth over the gold table. I just bought a new dining room table this week. Uh, new, I can't, nothing for me is new, but somebody else's new dining room table. And it's a beautiful wood table. And we put a tablecloth on top of it. 
And I told my wife, so who buys a beautiful table and it covers with a tablecloth? If I'm coming with a tablecloth, I might as well buy a folding table and a plastic table, put a tablecloth on top of it. Who knows? The, so I went and I bought a clear tablecloth. I want to see the table. Maran wrote a beautiful book. It's gold. And now we're putting a tablecloth on top of it. The, the tremendous building that Maran built, it's now shaking. There's an earthquake. So what happened after Ramah wrote his book? The first crack in the un unanimous acceptance of Maran is when the Ramah begins to argue with him. He says, now there's a crack and the halakha has splintered back into a thousand pieces. And who knows if after the Torah has been ripped back into pieces after Maran Shulchan Aruch, if there's any force on earth that will be able to unite together the Jewish people under one book. Now, I believe, honestly, that this is an unfair accusation against the Ramah. I believe the Ramah went a very, and I wrote this in my book, Yishalom, Ramah goes a long way to bring the Shulchan Aruch to the Ashkenazim, essentially. If it wasn't for him, this book wouldn't even be known in Ashkenaz. But let's, let's go with Rabbi Shem Tov while he's writing. And what's going to happen when Hashem will, not if, when Hashem will, let us go back to Eretz Yisrael. How are we going to become one people in one land of Israel? It's easy when we're all in different countries, in different communities, in different, but when we all go back to the same place, how will we be one people? Whether it's about the, the Sidu that we pray in. All of the halachot, everything. How are we ever going to be one together, living together with one standard? Who is going to be able to unite us again? We once had here a conversation in my Beda Knesset. What if we would do a mass Kabbalah Shabbat here in San Diego? All the rabbis, all the synagogues, all the denominations, all the congregants. We're going to do Friday night tefillah together. This was pre-COVID, so don't, get, don't accuse me of anything. We're all going to get together a mass tefillah. And we get together for that Friday night, I don't know, some football stadium, whatever it's going to be. A huge, a huge place. And if everyone says, unity, this is Jewish unity. And then what happens? We all get together. And who's going to lead services? Which siddur are we going to use? Which rabbi is going to give the derashah? World War III would break out in that football stadium. That's where Am Yisrael is right now. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin says, what's going to happen when we go back to Eretz Yisrael? How are we ever going to be united? Do you know which year, or which month, even better? Which year and which month Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin wrote this sentence? I have it here in the book, in case you don't believe me. Rabbi Shem Tov signs this, Rosh Chodesh Nisan. The new month of Nisan, Shnat Tafshin Chet, 1948. So if the State of Israel was founded in Iyal, this is one month before the founding of the State of Israel. So what's going to happen? We all get back together in Eretz Yisrael, and then there'll be chaos all over again? Who is going to unite Am Yisrael? And this is the thought that I wish to leave you with. We have all these things about why Maran, why not Maran, why the Rambam, why Kabbalah, why, 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 why. I understand all of those questions, and I will promise you that I will get to them. But for today, walk away with this. Can you imagine if the Shulchan Aruch was the only code of Jewish law we had? If Judaism was so simple that when you had a question, you didn't have crisis of opinions, you just looked in the book and got the answer. If every rabbi you asked the halachic question to would give you a general answer in the same direction, if all of the chachamim you knew would eat in each other's houses and pray in each other's synagogues, if all of your friends could marry each other, 
because we all had a Judaism that followed the same national code. That would give us our national autonomy back. And as we mentioned earlier in the beginning of this class, for Sephardim, autonomy rather than freedom is our main principle. We're looking for our own autonomy. We've given up so much to become one with the world around us. But how much are we willing to give in to be one with the Jewish community that we're a part of? Everyone has been hagim. I have them too. Everybody has desires to do halakha this way, your allegiances in that direction. My rabbi, your rabbi, his rabbi, this hoshiva, that posek. But how much are we willing to sacrifice to put our life on the line, our customs on the line, and say, our life depends on this. The future of Am Yisrael's autonomy depends on this. Can we possibly rally together and become one? I have a shio on YouTube. Uh, what was it called? Um, uh, I taught in Jerusalem. Some of you were there. Uh, it was called Jewish Stockholm Syndrome. Rav Uziel tried to unite the Jewish people. He wanted to get together all the sages of the Jewish people to decide on finally on one halakha for everybody. And Rav Uziel found himself sitting at that table alone. Nobody was willing to give up something to be united with somebody else. Maran is the opportunity to not have to give up anything. To go back to the code of Jewish law the way our parents, our grandparents, and our rabbis, rabbis did it. Bezat Hashem. It's my hope that even if you don't agree that Maran is the ultimate code of Jewish law for you, that you'll think about this. Think about this idea. Imagine how beautiful and glorious Am Yisrael would be if we were all on the same page. It would be something magnificent. Imagine how easy it would be to put together a Sanhedrin. Imagine how glorious it would look for Am Yisrael to live in one land with one Torah as one people. As the Navi says, no longer will the Jewish people be split into two nations. There will come a time where the Jewish people will unite. We have the opportunity to do that ourselves. We don't have to wait for some magical uh, event to happen in our life. We can do it now. You can subscribe to this now. You can join and be part of it. And I want to end off just again a word of thanks to Rabbi Dweck and Sina and Ari uh, Avi for having this Ben Amidash here. This forum is a place that doesn't exist, to my knowledge, anywhere else in the world. The ability to hear from a variety of chachamim of all backgrounds, and I'm very happy to see that they're not all savagadim. They're all sharing genuine, honest, heartfelt Torah. And I knew coming into here that not everybody would agree with me. But I knew one thing would happen here, and that everybody would listen and give me a chance to share. And that's something unique. I can't speak of any other Bermidash that I know that's like that. And so, Ashokhem Yisrael, you should be very proud of yourselves. Very proud of what you've built here. And I wish that Rabbi Dweck and all of his Talmudim around the world, and especially those that are with him physically, Yamim Adimim Melech Tosif, Orichemim Asbeo Vareo Bishwati, Hashem should bless you with long life and health, and you should only continue to build the Sot Chayel Betorah Virachamayim. Thank you so much for having me here today.